Welcome everyone. You're listening to Horizontes, Latin America's leadership forum. Our focus is on developing business leaders in Latin America, i.e. the skills and topics that leaders need to succeed. I'm John Price, your host. Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading market intelligence company for Latin America. In today's episode, we're speaking to economist Roberto Salinas about what Mexico's economic future looks like as AMLO's presidency enters its sixth and final year. Roberto, great to see you again. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. Uh, really looking forward. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. How are you being? Very well, John. Thank you. It's great to be with you and to talk about Mexico, Latin America, and all these uh, uh, rather bizarre headwinds that uh, that seem to pop up all over the place. Exactly. Now, Roberto, I think you're well known in Mexico, but many of the people who will be listening to this um, will not have benefited from living in Mexico and seeing you on TV Azteca and, and other platforms where you've appeared over the years. Um, so for, the, for their sake, can you, can you share with us a little bit of you know, how your career began as an economist and as a thought leader on, on Mexican economic and political matters? And tell us a little bit about your career as it's advanced to date. Of course, John. Uh, well, it, it, it's a rather long story, but uh, to try and, and, and shorten it, I thought I was really destined for academia uh, when I came back to Mexico in, in the very late 80s and early 90s is when, is when Mexico be, began to be touted as a darling in the emerging market world and and talk about liberalization and free enterprise and, and free trade and the whole NAFTA debate began around that time and I got knee deep into those debates and was very fortunate to be able to engage uh in in many of the debates inside of Mexico on television on radio in in uh in in published media and especially in in speaking roles throughout the United States I started getting a whole host of invitations in Miami, New York, Washington, Los Angeles, uh, a great deal in Dallas and, and the greater Texas area, um, and and this is when this is when I became fully immersed in in the think tank world and in the public policy world uh, around the benefits that uh, free enterprise and free trade would bring for Mexico. So that's that's when I first became a, it was it was really the the late 80s and especially early 90s is when I when I became part of the conversation as to where Mexico was headed and, and what the benefits of these dramatic transformations structural transformations would uh, would generate uh, would generate for the country back then John when when you and I began our our own conversations uh, you recall that there was a lot of speculation. Uh, we we had a few bits and pieces from from the data that had emerged as a result of uh, Mexico joining the General Agreement of Tariffs of Trade and the unilateral liberalization that began in the mid uh, the mid eighties. Uh, the the fight against uh, inflation and macroeconomic disequilibria. Uh, but it was all speculation as to what would happen uh, back then. And and now I think we have a lot more data. Where we can adequately judge the uh, pros and cons of some of these uh, uh, structural reforms that um, that that took place, but well, that, that's, uh, but it was bad. You know, I was going to say that's exactly what I want to want to get into because um, uh, my own my own arrival in Mexico 
similarly dovetails that period of time, which was the uh, election of Carlos Salinas. I guess Madrid had taken Mexico into the the GATT agreement, and of course Salinas uh, was instrumental in in getting uh, NAFTA signed in Mexico. Um, and Mexico was certainly pretty pretty quickly thrust uh, upon the global stage of competitiveness and and having to compete and having to do so. Um, some would say unprepared for it. Um, others would say, you know, NAFTA was the greatest thing that ever happened to Mexico. But what, in, you know, in the 30 years since, Mexico has gone through a radical transformation, um, right. has signed trade agreements with, I think, roughly half the world's GDP. Yeah. Um, and, you know, has probably done some things well and, and other things less so. So if you were to sort of do a report card on where Mexico stands in its efforts to compete on the global stage, where would you say it's done well and where has it fallen short? Well, I think, John, uh, such an important question. Um, but uh, 30 years after the fact, uh, I think uh, few of us would have imagined the explosion of interregional trade that has taken place in North America and Mexico's place in global trade uh, worldwide. It is now a recognized force in in trade competitiveness in in uh, opportunities for investment and in absolutely first rate companies that compete on uh, on a global scale uh and that is partially a result not just of of um of interregional trade in, in North America but also the what i thought was a, an intelligent approach to a, uh, to multilateralism, uh, in other words, to try and and engage trade on all borders, not just the North American border, not just the the, the Rio Grande border. Obviously, uh, the U.S. is our most important trading partner, but that doesn't that should not preclude Mexico from capturing opportunities uh, east, west, and 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 even south. Uh, one of the first free trade agreements that was signed by Mexico was with Chile back in the early 90s and also Colombia and and and, and Venezuela even uh uh back in the back in the mid 90s and so i thought this approach was was an intelligent approach that um that significantly mitigated the what what uh, some economists call the dangers of regionalization in other words that protectionism gets escalated to a um to a regional uh, to a regional setting where the same vices of protectionism now become entrenched at uh, at a regional level, and Mexico was able to avoid that. So back then, uh, we used to, we used to um, we used to champion free trade, saying that Mexico in the early '90s was exporting as much as 30, 40 billion dollars per per annum, and that this was transforming the external sector, and that despite the setbacks and and despite the the fears of being unprepared to compete on a global scale well here was data that that showed that mexico could be uh, an important player and that figure now john is like every two weeks so in truth what what has happened is when when you look at bilateral trade uh reaching uh perhaps in 2022 2023 certainly uh being able to be north of 800 billion dollars and or mexico being able to export manufacturing goods uh, over a billion dollars per day, per day. Those are staggering figures that I think it would have been more likely 
to think that Martians were going to invade us back in the 1990s, that to think of Mexico would become such an export powerhouse back then. So uh, I like to say uh, the way that uh, we use the chant uh, when, 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 when we go to the football games, si se puede, of course, si se puede. When you have the conditions to be able to compete uh, in, a, in a playing field that is, that, is, that is leveled, that is equal with regional rules of the game that are well understood by, by all parties, then free trade can begin to work its, its, um, its force and 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 catapult uh, um, growth in a manner that today the external sector has become the main engine of growth uh, in, in, uh, in Mexico, and for good or ill, has significantly uh, mitigated some of the policy mistakes that were made back then and, and that are still with us today. What I can say is that many of us fell into the trap or to the, the fallacy of the golden straitjacket. Many of us thought, and you recall our conversations back then, John, that with NAFTA and with global uh, uh, multilateral trade agreements, uh, that Mexico would be forced to do some of the internal changes that were required in order to boost its internal competitiveness. That did not happen. Uh, very much the contrary happened in, 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 in many cases. Many of us thought that by now, um, electricity and energy would be fully liberalized, uh, or that other sectors would also be liberalized, and that property rights would be far better protected, and that failed to occur. So I think one of the big lessons in the last 30 years is that in order to maximize the benefits of open trade, you also have to have a coherent internal policy that basically lets people work, that that, that greatly facilitates enterprise, especially at the micro level, in order to be able to uh, capture the opportunities that are at the micro level and that are able to integrate small enterprises, small and micro enterprises into the productive chain uh, and the geoeconomic map of North America and the world. Yeah, I think I think you've really hit it on the head. Um, uh, as you recall, uh, Jerry Har and I wrote a book uh, a long time ago that unfortunately is still very applicable, and that's about competitiveness in Latin America. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know the great debate I remember when when Mexico was looking at signing NAFTA was uh, clearly Mexico was ill prepared to compete with a behemoth like the United States. The question was, do you go ahead and expose yourself to raw competition, then force yourself to change to be able to compete, or do you try to do those inner tweakings, you know, fixing the plumbing, fixing the carpentry of the house before you then put it on the market and try to compete. And I think that, you know, one of the things that happened with NAFTA, and it was a it was an it was an unfortunate coincidence that the peso also collapsed and essentially the banking system defaulted uh right around the same time as NAFTA was coming into full force. Because any mid-sized company that up until then had relied essentially on the domestic market to for its demands for its goods suddenly had to compete with foreign products and didn't have access to capital to retool for export. And so there was a entire uh, you know genre of mid-sized Mexican companies, privately owned, family-held companies that essentially went out of business. Some of them were fortunate enough to sell themselves to multinationals. A very few number were able to get access to financing and and become exporters. But the argument was that 
you know, the, 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 the NAFTA and this incredible trade growth that you, you know, pointed out was really uh, being taken advantage of by multinationals that had the capital to put up large scale factories in northern Mexico and take advantage of that. Um, back to this argument of do you fix the plumbing after you put the house on the market, after you expose yourself to the competitiveness, or do you try to do it beforehand? If Mexico has failed to make some of those tweaks to its economic engineering to make it a more competitive economy after being exposed to competitiveness, I think one could say that they never would have got around to it ahead of trying to compete. So, you know, given that kind of mixed report card, if you like, um, how do you think those economic competitiveness shortcomings may have influenced the political embrace of a disruptive populist like like AMLO, like Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and and frankly the ideology of the Morena Party, which tends to prey on the kind of class politics that that a NAFTA brings to light. Um, or do you think that the phenomena of AMLO and Morena is owed to other things like political or social or any other factors you can you might comment on? Well, that's a that's a very difficult question, uh, John, but it's uh, one that is absolutely essential as we approach the presidential elections uh, in, in 2024 and all the debates that have ensued since then. But one thing I can say is that you will be hard pressed to find, even even in 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 um, uh, fringe uh, radical uh, political and inter and ideological groups, an opposition to free trade in Mexico. Even Lopez Obrador was the first one that back in 2019, when USMCA was uh, was was signed, he said, we're the first ones that approved it in the House and the Senate. And of course, that was fast track in Mexico. That was the will of the president back then. But it's something that he wasn't going to toy with, especially when you consider that that uh, supply chains and productive chains have become integrated all the way from, uh, from Anchorage, Alaska, to Tuxla Gutierrez. Uh, and and how much of the Mexican economy now depends on this highly diversified um, uh, external sector where it's no longer uh, mineral-based or um, natural resource-based or petroleum-based as many other countries in, in Latin America are. We can genuinely say that we export a great deal of goods. Agriculture that supposedly was uh, many feared that was going to be decimated by, by, um, by open trade in in North America because of the tremendous lack of competitiveness in Mexican agriculture and the lack of financing and everything that you that you've just mentioned well that's turned out to be a good example of don't fix the plumbing first go straight into the competition and see what you can do with what you have naturally that should should have generated a consensus of making life easier for enterprise in Mexico for instance, many of us pushed for uh, capital market integration. We still do. You, you, you see this a great deal, especially in the border uh, states or those states that have become fully integrated into the global uh, uh, marketplace on how we can significantly facilitate uh, access to capital. Uh, many of us have also thought that there, there could be a role for the uh, North American Development Bank, a very important role for the North American Development Bank and not 
not what is sometimes called the Nada Bank, despite the great people that it, that 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 have um, that have led that institution, but how to be able to, for instance, um, participate in organizing uh, public-private partnerships for infrastructure financing or for uh, or for long-term financing in in uh, in in energy in in the development of energy inputs and, and manufacturing um and naves industriales and and the like uh well that uh, that um that that has not occurred in the manner that we would have liked uh for it to to occur but i think it's it's very clear or to me it's very clear that the popular consensus surrounding uh open trade uh first of all and second the fact that that the fact that um that that we do, we do have successful case studies in many many sectors, especially in manufacturing, agriculture. I already uh, mentioned, and and even services nowadays um, speak a great deal to the fact that why don't you just step in the ring and then see how you can how you can sharpen what you have, uh, significantly sharpen what you have to make you uh, to make you more competitive. Back then, John, uh, again, when you and I first began these conversations, there was a great deal of fear. Ross Perot, the great sucking sound. Uh, Mexico is the size of Florida. Uh, el, el pez grande se va a comer al pez chico. That was the big fear back then that the United States would simply swallow Mexico. Uh, whereas today, uh, most of the debates, at least the ones that I engage in, tend to be in the United States. And, 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 uh, and of course, with uh, everything surrounding the, the 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 horrendous narrative of building a wall, and now uh, um, other politicians claiming that we should seal the border. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the practical aspect of sealing the border, that's basically saying let's do away with two way trade that is north of seven hundred and fifty billion dollars today. That's just simply absolute nonsense. I understand the political. Um, narrative or the political implication uh, behind it, but from a practical point of view, uh, what you need to be thinking of right now, if we were to have a third iteration of NAFTA USMCA, it would be how to significantly increase the levels of integration in markets such as infrastructure, such as capital markets. Um, some of us even thought back then, John, that that there would be a, a eventual currency union and a, a a tariff union that we would create the equivalent of a common market in, in North America. And I believe some of the early champions of NAFTA that's that that was their vision. That was their that was their goal. But uh, but again, it's 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 incredible to me that those opponents and the and the and the moderate left and the hard left and the and the hard right that opposed free trade back in the uh, early 90s and said, we're not prepared, we can't compete at this level. Now today, it would be political suicide to say no to trade. We hope you're enjoying this latest edition of the Horizontes Leadership Podcasts, a series of conversations designed to inform, instruct, and inspire Latin American business leaders. Entrepreneurs, politicians, business magnets, inventors, authors, subject matter experts, financiers, and cultural icons from across Latin America are among our guests. We hope you find these podcasts as compelling to listen to as we find them interesting to produce. If you wish to also receive our curated reading list of the latest articles, white papers, and interviews we circulate each week, write to us at horizontes at americasme.com. That's H-O-R- I Z 
O-N-T-E-S at A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I dot com. And now, back to the Horizontes podcast. Yeah, it's it, it's always been an, an interesting um, sort of anomaly within the AMLO um, ideology of, of, you know, he's gone out and he's clearly criticized many of the business leaders in Mexico. Um, and like I said, he's, he's done a very effective job at playing class politics. But he, and every once in a while, he'll throw a, a bomb at, uh, at the United States because a little bit of anti-Americanism always has a bit of play in Mexico as it does in Canada and elsewhere. But he, you're right, he's been very careful not to mess with NAFTA or the USMCA. He understands how many jobs it creates and uh, therefore how important it is to the st economic stability of the country. Um, one, of the, one of the benefits of NAFTA that I remember seeing anecdotally that you might not expect, because ultimately it's a trade agreement, was that uh, in those early years when American and Canadian and, and European companies were setting up manufacturing facilities, uh, again, in the hopes of exporting to the United States from Mexico. Um, as they were setting up their factories, the, the regular sort of lineup of different government officials would come by, you know, uh, to hook up their electricity, to hook up their water, and they would ask for a bribe, as was customary for such a <laughs> transaction. And, and these foreign companies would sort of, you know, were appalled by this, and they'd get on the phone to their respective ambassadors, and the ambassadors would call up the Mexican counterparts and say, hey, you know, leave these guys alone. You know, we promised them the world. They, they've gone ahead and invested money in Mexico. And so the Mexicans told these government officials to lay off on the foreigners. And so they went around, and when they knocked on the doors of the Mexican companies, they asked for double the bribe because they had to meet their quotas, and now with fewer clientele. And now the Mexican companies, for the first time, had the gumption to question paying bribes. They said, hey, the American company next door and the French company out down the street, they don't have to pay a bribe. Why should I? And so there was a real change of mindset of companies inside Mexico saying, hey, we also demand um, you know, first world uh, transparency in our, in our country. And that was that was a phenomenal change. You know, I'm I'm not suggesting that Mexico's gotten rid of corruption, but certainly some areas of corruption have lessened, particularly as it resolved as it evolves around new investment in the country. And uh, and that's really thanks to a change of mindset that came from NAFTA. So um, I agree with you. I think that that NAFTA itself is not the political football uh, that we sort of feared it might be. Um, and yet, you know, there are um, there are a lot of people in Mexico, particularly the investment class, and I refer more to Mexicans than to international companies in Mexico, who, um, who have been very critical of this government in Mexico. Um, why do you think that the AMLO administration... Um, you know, on the one hand, very rational in its treatment of NAFTA and protecting its interests there. Um, 
why do you think it has nonetheless sowed a lot of uncertainty, even fear amongst the business class in Mexico? Uh, another good question, and I don't think I really answered your former question, John, so I'll try and, 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 and collapse the, uh, the rise of AMLO and, and, and the fears that exist today. Uh, Luis Rubio, one of uh, the, you know well, a, a very uh, remarkable commentator on, on, on the realities of Mexico and his place in the world, has, has stated, I think, in, in, a, um, in, in, in a very smart way that AMLO is a fantastic, uh, is fantastic at tactics, uh, not necessarily at vision, strategy, and looking towards the future. In fact, if you think of AMLO, he's much more about the past, returning Mexico to the supposed glory days of the, of the early 70s and the 60s and the Desarrollo Estabilizador and making it a, a petrol-based economy once again and making petrol the great business and the great engine uh, of, of growth for the benefit of the people. AMLO's been able to capture a sentiment that, that somehow mirrors what Donald Trump was able to capture in the United States and other uh, populist leaders have throughout the world of tapping into the disenfranchised those that have suffered from the impunity and also the elitism of uh, governing classes, of the, the, the phenomenon of uh, Enrique Peña Nieto and Grupo Atlacomulco and the uh, horrendous corruption that took place, uh, that took place there and the sort of um, uh, Mar Marie Antoinette, well, if they don't have bread, well, let them eat cake type of attitude against those that have been the victims of, of, of large disruption Without without really paying a closer attention as to what uh, the what the elements were that occasioned such anger and such um, such a such a popular response to uh, the ruling uh, the the ruling classes, um, uh, Amlo's been able to capitalize on that. And despite the despite the horrendous corruption that has occurred in 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 his own uh, six year term, nevertheless he's been able to weather that storm and continue to be uh, extraordinarily popular. But the fact that he's very good at tactics, that he's a great chess player, that he knows how to move the pieces in, in, in the right manner in order to remain the center of attention, I think is behind uh, I think is behind his popularity. But when you go out and you expropriate land um, uh, saying that it's in the interest of national security or it's in the interest of, of, of uh, strategic, uh, of strategic sectors uh, of the economy, the signal that you're sending to long-term investors is, well, please come and invest in Mexico, but I can do whatever I want with your investment and your property in the interest of national security by presidential decree. So where are the checks and balances that come into play in order to be able to protect the investor, especially the very long-term uh, investor that is looking at an opportunity in Mexico. On the other hand, you have the issues of, uh, of security and institutional fragility in Mexico. You have many governors that could be of the Morena party, John, or could be of the PAN, or could be of the old-style PRI, that because of trade and because of uh, now what is called nearshoring, the nearshoring opportunities and the investment opportunities that, that have arisen, are singing a tune that many of us would have thought was, would, would have been impossible uh, um, 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. Uh, of course, you have the likes of Maru Gutierrez in Chihuahua. Well, she's from the PAN and she understands uh, she understands the workings of what of investment needs and and uh, and enterprise zones. 
But you have Alfonso Durazo, who's a tremendous AMLO loyalist, the former um, minister of security here in Mexico, who's now governor of Sonora, who's, who's, whose narrative is amazing when it comes to nearshoring and to regional integration. And he hopes, as other governors uh, hoped, that someday you could have a free trade zone, a full common market between Arizona and Sonora. They, they even call it the the mega region, the Sonora, uh, Arizona mega region. Not to say of Nuevo León and the, the, the enormous work that Samuel Garcia has done there in order to be able to uh, uh, attract investment, even despite the fears of expropriation and even despite some of the terrible, terrible uh, um, policy mistakes that uh, the AMLO administration has done in the interest of advancing his so-called uh, fourth uh, fourth transformation. So, um I, I'm glad that those critical sentiments do exist surrounding uh, uh, the investor uh, community in, in Mexico and not just the, the big investor community, the small investor community. Uh, and, and the opposition has failed to capitalize on the fact that there needs to be a powerful narrative to, to, to counter uh, such a, um, wild uh, presidential adventures uh, that, that, that completely um undermine any type of long-term uh, growth strategy that Mexico uh so desperately needs and has so desperately needed in the past as you know uh if you look at Mexican growth during the past 30 years it's really i mean it's the perfect example of economic mediocrity um uh, the year in and year out, our average growth rate has been between 1.5 and 2% when many people thought, well, here's the great Jaguar that could be growing China style growth at uh, five and 6%. Some states have those states that are linked to trade, Sonora, Chihuahua, Nuevo Leon, Aguascalientes, Querétaro, even Yucatan nowadays with a great governor that uh, that they have, uh, Manuel Vila, you know, they're, they're growing at, at double digit rates even after the pandemic. And yet, yet there are others, Chiapas, Tabasco, Campeche, Guerrero, Oaxaca, that are still, that are still, I, I mean, it's it's it, it would almost be too good to call them third world that are still significantly backward and have not been able to integrate and to participate in the economic benefits that structural reforms and especially free trade has brought about. And that's a big pending item for the future, whoever becomes president in 2024. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the region's leading consultancy and advisory firm, serving companies operating in Latin America and Caribbean markets for over three decades. AMI's vast network of consultants located in every major market in the Americas gather vital market intelligence from privileged sources that our industry practice leaders turn into insightful analysis to help our clients, some of the largest investors in Latin America, make vital business decisions. Before you decide to invest, launch a product, choose a partner, enter a market or acquire a business, make sure your decision is an informed one. Find us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I.com. And now back to the Odysontes podcast. So, Roberto, um, you know, everything you said about the, the regional differences in Mexico makes a lot of sense. Um, this is not just about class difference. This is about regional difference and certain parts of the economy being left behind by uh, the trade-pushed growth of Mexico and the tourism-pushed growth of Mexico. You pointed out very, very truly that, uh, you know, half the country is not benefited from this. 
And, and AMLO's tapped into that. And yet there is a, uh, a completely different view of Mexico when you get farther away from the country. Foreign investors look at Mexico as geopolitically blessed by being so close to the United States, particularly Texas, which is really probably the most blessed economic subregion of the United States. Um, the nearshoring uh, advantages that Mexico has over China today with rising labor costs in China. And of course, um, the the enormous digital transformation in Mexico that's attracting all kinds of investment by foreign companies that are bringing uh, disruptive apps and disruptive business models to Mexico. As such, foreign direct investment continues to be strong and perhaps not as strong as it could be, but still pretty darn strong and strong enough, of course, combined with a uh, robust monetary policy in Mexico to keep the peso uh, surprisingly strong. Um, so how do you explain this uh, dichotomy between a investor class inside Mexico that is really um, disillusioned with AMLO and this uh, global cheerleading that's going on uh, looking at Mexico as either a wonderful place for nearshoring and or digital economic uh, digital economy growth uh well that 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 that's perhaps the hardest question of all to to answer uh, uh as a result of the of the pandemic uh john the lockdowns uh that ensued and these tremendous supply chain disruptions it became it became obvious that there was great benefit to uh, to stay closer to home rather than uh, give priority to 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 just in time, and it's uh, the the opportunity cost of 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 not having semiconductor chips, for instance, or or having all kinds of other inputs required uh, for your uh, external sector and for um, and for trade and investment in the context of uh, USMCA uh, were were significantly were 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 significantly outweighed. Um, by the opportunity cost of keeping your plants and keeping your operations far away uh, from home. So all of a sudden it becomes it, it, a window open where it becomes very important not just to capture uh, um, affordable labor costs, uh, but also logistics. And from a logistical point of view, and logistics now being a prime driver, not just transportation, but infrastructure as a whole, but being a prime driver in, in, uh, in trade competitiveness, uh, worldwide, well, it stands to reason that Mexico could be an enormous beneficiary beyond many others in Latin America that could also be beneficiaries of the whole euphoria surrounding friendshoring and uh, uh, and nearshoring. But of course, uh, it would be a mistake to, as many politicians in Mexico have have uh, have fallen uh, prey to this mistake, to think that this is a magic wand that is going to solve all problems. Rather, it's an opportunity to say what is required for successful nearshoring. What type of infrastructure vision and strategy do I need in the future? What type of capital finance? vision and strategy do I need for the future? Human capital development do I need? It's very all well and good to say that Tesla is going to set up shop in in, in, uh, in Nuevo León or that Sonora is going to attract billions of dollars of investment in in um, uh, celdas photovoltaicas, in, 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 in uh, renewable energy camps, in manufacturing concerns and a new, uh, a, a new and improved Ford plant. 
that 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 consolidates the the supply chain that is developed between Windsor, Hermosillo, and 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 Detroit, and so on and so on. If you really don't have the availability of human capital to be able to service the expansion needs of uh, of of much greater of much greater investment. So I I, I think it uh, um, I think that looking beyond the political tactics and into the long term, it behooves whoever uh, whoever leads uh, Mexico in the future, both in the legislature and the executive branch, and 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 the the entire public service uh, administration uh, to to think hard about how future generations could benefit from sound public policy in in these regards and begin to mesh the 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 needs the need the internal needs uh that mexico uh needs to the that mexico requires in order to be able to become more competitive with the possibility of trade expansion let me put this another way uh the economist has uh the economist magazine has this great section called what if uh and so um now the of course the popular one is well what if uh, chat gpt turns out to uh completely overtake us and we won't be able to tell the difference between an artificial and a human uh, intelligent uh, um, um, instance, uh, episode of human intelligence versus artificial intelligence. And what if this and what if that? Well, what if Mexico, what if AMLO had not canceled the new airport in Texcoco? What if AMLO, uh, what, what would have happened if AMLO had devoted the enormous amount of money that has gone down the drain and the environmental destruction that the Maya train has occasioned, a Maya train, an idea that is driven by 1950s, 1960s ideological sentiment of generating polos de desarrollo throughout the region, a region that has developed, but it's developed because of open trade and open investment with, with, with the world. Or what if instead of pouring uh, billions and billions of dollars to a refinery that is even going to be considered a historical relic in, in maybe a couple of generations or or, or more in, in the port of Dos Bocas, the worst possible place to be able to establish a refinery, by the way, if you're going to establish a refinery in Mexico, Dos Bocas would have been the worst possible place to do it, but that's just because it was in Tabasco. These were all emotional, uh, non-cost-benefit analysis-based uh, arguments in order to do what AMLO said. Aquí la palabra, mi palabra es la ley, o lo que diga mi dedito. Well, what if all of this had happened? I, I have to think that with, with the nearshoring euphoria, John, today we would maybe have double the amount of foreign investment. And we would be growing not at those mediocre rates that uh, that I mentioned on average of, of 2% per annum or 1.5% that is projected for, for 2024, but actually at those levels of 6 and 7 and 8%, that many of us thought that Mexico would be able to capture, not just in a single year, but year in and year out. And you know what the compound effect of that does for generations and especially for families living in moderate and, and, and extreme poverty. It, it's not the magic wand, but it's, it goes a long way towards significantly improving uh, their, their, uh, their living standards. And, and that's, uh, that's, I think, a shame. Of course, with a peso, being so strong, I think AMLO's been unbelievably lucky, but I would claim that it's not so much uh, monetary policy, but we very much welcome the fact that he has respected the independence of the central bank or uh, the fact that you've had this nearshoring investment or this investment that, that has come in 
uh, trying to capture the advantages of nearshoring. Um, rather, I think it's due to the very large interest rate uh, differential between a federal funds rate that now stands a little bit north of 5%, but a, uh, um, a benchmark rate in Mexico that stands north of 11%. And there's several people and several institutions, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, many other institutional uh, investment uh, concerns that are willing to take the risk in in um, in uh, possible peso de depreciation, and but but are going to bet. Well, let's let's put this in in let's say Pemex paper. Well, Pemex is, is not just too big to fail. There is no way it can fail under AMLO because that's right. it's more likely that AMLO will privatize the pyramids than 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 acknowledge that Pemex is de facto de facto bankrupt. So Pemex places paper that right. that that pays you a coupon and pays you an interest rate of ten percent to finance current expenditures. That's a Titanic, John. That's a yeah, Titanic. No, I, I agree. It's no way to drive your economy, and ultimately, it's um, it's 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 sucking a lot of money out of private sector investment. In fact. Not only, as you rightly point out, uh, and and I also enjoyed reading those economist what if articles, um, the the missed opportunity in attracting even more foreign direct investment. What is a lot tougher to measure because there is really no measurement of it. But in in anecdotal evidence that I've heard from more than four different private bankers of good standing in Mexico is that <clears throat> they, by their calculations, over one hundred and fifty billion dollars of affluent Mexican wealth has left Mexico since AMLO came to power, um, going to uh, Texas real estate projects, uh, Spanish real estate, Florida, and, the, and, the, and Florida, and the regular you know, list of, of Bolsa assets in the U.S. and elsewhere. So that money, you know, those loss of funds uh, and the fact that people are keeping their, the lights on their building, their businesses going, but they're not investing in I'm referring to the the industrial groups of Mexico. They're not investing in growth in the economy at the moment. So let's let's look forward uh, for a moment because I think um, you know we're we're largely in agreement as to to what's happened under AMLO and uh, this missed opportunity, this missed geopolitical near nearshoring opportunity. Um, one one other thing that's worth noting is that. Um, Mexico is not by any means capturing all of that lost Chinese uh, investment. Um, uh, and one of the big reasons it's not is concern that there will not be sufficient energy to um, to, to, exactly. to run their, their plants, um, given the underinvestment and now the, dis, you know, the sort of regulatory dissuasion of investment in alternative and private sector, either it's gas-fired or, or solar or what have you, generation. And of course, the real lack of footprint of transmission and storage in Mexico uh, that's needed if you're going to take on alternative energy. So, um, you know, Mexico could have captured even more of that nearshoring boom than they have. No question. Um, a year from now, a little more than a year from now, Mexico go for the polls, uh, go to the polls. It's a six-year, as you know, tradition to uh, elect a new president, um, as well as both houses. Um, the, you know, most observers seem resigned to the fact that the Morena Party will win the presidency and a sizable portion of Senate and House. Um, what do you, what do you, you know, uh, we've talked about it a bit, but We've talked mostly about AMLO, but how is it that the Morena Party has been successful uh, as they have? And 
do you think they can continue that success as they uh, outgrow the shadow of their sort of founding father, Amlo? Well, no, I, I, I practically I, I really think that without Amlo, uh, Morena will seem more like um, like a place where you have uh, several hundreds of, of 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 scorpions going at each other. Um, AMLO is the heart and soul of Morena today. We don't even know what Morena stands for. Movimiento de Regeneración Nacional. That can mean anything and everything as Partido Revolucionario Institucional meant in its heyday, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, today, it's whatever AMLO decides, that's what Morena is. And in the absence of such a strong uh, figure of AMLO, again, a, a master, uh, um, Master at, at political tactics, uh, I don't. I don't see. I don't see uh, a, a future leader that is going to be able to give Morena the type of uh, integrity and the type of cohesion that it needs as a as a political force in Mexico. Uh, Morena today is synonymous with AMLO, and AMLO is synonymous with these uh, handouts that he gives to the political clientels. And with the, the fact that he enjoys a he enjoys the national media stage from seven in the morning to ten in the morning, practically every day of the week, and that, that keeps him in the conversation wherever you go and whatever you do, people are talking about him. That is part and parcel of those masterful political tactics that that uh, that he exercises. But again, John, you know, there's 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 a great deal of similarities. If you look back at 1993 and compare it 30 years later, we're on the heels of, of, of a possible recession in the United States and a, and a possible recession in Mexico and the way that that's going to affect us. We're also witnessing a very dramatic rise in, in interest rates. Back in mid-1993, Carlos Salinas de Gortari was even more popular than López Obrador is today. He had 65% approval ratings back then. And of course, the big debate was whether it was going to be Manuel Camacho or Luis Donaldo Colosio, the successor uh, of the, uh, well, there were others in the running, the successor uh, to be president of, of Mexico. It's a very, very similar situation. The reason that I say this not is not because history is going to repeat itself, but that anything and everything could happen, especially after black swans are becoming uh, seemingly a, a regular occurrence in, in our world, anything and everything could happen a year from now. Uh, we could see the rise of an opposition that it today is fragmented and, to, and, and inefficient and has been unable to consolidate an anti-AMLO movement that rallies around that disappointed investor sentiment. Uh, or, or we could see that uh, Amlo chooses a, a, a dark horse in, in his successor. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be supposedly a democratic process to choose the next candidate. But we really know that it's lo que diga mi dedito, as Amlo likes to say. It's it's whoever Amlo chooses that is going to be the next president. And right now in the running, we have we have three contenders: Claudia Sheinbaum, uh, the the mayor of Mexico City. Uh, Marcelo Ebrard, who would be the favorite in the United States, was the Minister of Foreign Relations, and Adana Augusto uh, from uh, Tabasco, the former governor of Tabasco, who's now the interior minister and is considered the political brother of, of AMLO. But who knows what could happen? We could have negative economic disruption or we could have positive economic disruption. 
Um, it's, it's too early to tell what would happen beyond the fact that it does look exceedingly likely that Morena will win both the, uh, the, the House, the Senate, and of course the presidency in the next, um, in, in the next elections. The big question, if you shift from tactics to strategy, would be, well, how, what, what could AMLO do in order to be able to cement Morena as a, what could AMLO and, and his, and his uh, allies in Morena do to cement Morena as a credible uh, political alternative looking forward? And I think you'll have to revisit many of the terrible decisions, policy decisions that have been done in this sexennial, and perhaps think of, yes, social policy is very important, but that cannot be done on the basis of handouts. Rather, we need intelligent social policy that is able to that is able to provide a reliable and credible safety net to those that are victims of disruption or those that live in, in extreme poverty. And that is something that the ruling classes back in the, uh, from Salinas de Gortari onwards, failed, I think, failed to address or did not address in, in the manner and in the scope that was required in order to be able to uh, listen to the voice of those that were that thought were disenfranchised and thought of AMLO as a, basically, a, a messianic savior. The Horizontes Leadership Forum is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence. Each year, AMI's most senior practice leaders, led by your podcast host, John Price, are invited by over 50 conference, seminar, and private business meeting organizers to provide their insights, predictions, and opinions concerning the most pressing business trends and challenges of the day in the Americas. To learn more about how your next regional planning meeting or conference can be enhanced by a presentation from AMI's leadership team, visit us at americasmi.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S-M-I dot com. And now, back to the Horizontes podcast. Yeah, I think ultimately the fall of PRI was that um, the PRI was pretty uh, you know, once described as the perfectest dictatorship, was pretty good at spreading, um, <clears throat> at spreading the, the the rewards of power. Um, you know, the party before Salinas came in probably had two or three million um, uh, militantes, you know, members of the party, and they would all benefit in one way or another. It might not amount to much money, but it was something. Um, there was upward mobility within the party. You know, you could, uh, uh, you might work in it for a regulator for a few years and then maybe make it to, uh, you know, as a supportive role in the mayor's office and and, and move up accordingly. And everybody got a, a small share of the bribes. And I think under Salinas, um, hard to say if there was more or less corruption, but it was certainly much more um condensed in its distribution of those benefits and i think that they they lost uh sight of that even in fact even while embracing you know um more global economy and and improving the private sector considerably the public sector side of mexican politics was uh, too radically changed and that you know that just really hurt the party's prospects and i think it's really interesting what you say that Morena doesn't really have an ideology other than it's uh, it, it, the manifestation of the will of, of AMLO. You, you could say the same about almost any political party in Mexico today. I mean, the fact that, you know, 
what was once considered a wide political spectrum of parties uh, came together um, to form one party around election time is uh, it just speaks to the lack of ideology. And I think that's a really um, interesting dilemma in Mexico in terms of going forward. And it will be up to the leader of the Morena party to um, it will be a great challenge to outgrow the shadow of AMLO and put their own stamp their own personality on the party and maybe try to develop some form of ideology so that they can compete in future elections by taking a position vis-a-vis uh, -vis other parties. Because I think you're right. I think other than, you know, we're not the establishment, uh, that quickly runs out of steam when you become the right. establishment. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, let's talk about, because... So much of the political discussion in Mexico always centers on the leadership and the parties. But ultimately, the power of the voter um, and, and the ground-up uh, forces of democracy also play a role. And so if we take a longer view going forward, and, and here I'm speaking on behalf of, you know, clients and, and companies that invest for a 20-year return on investment, whether it's in energy or even in manufacturing or in domestic uh, domestic businesses that earn pesos, they're taking a longer-term view on the Mexican economy. And those people want to know, what is the Mexican, how does the Mexican voter think about things like free trade and free enterprise and property rights and these these bedrock fundamentals that make uh, a modern economy work. Um, is there enough of a conscient, you know, consciousness of these issues amongst Mexican voters uh, that resonate with them? How how will Mexican voters play a role in bringing uh, consistency and? sort of a return to the center of Mexican politics, the way that I think Chilean voters have been instrumental mm -hmm. at keeping mm -hmm. Chilean politics on the center path. Is there enough of a conscientiousness amongst Mexican voters, a, a sense of rationality uh, that keeps our political classes in line? My sense is that there's a sufficient um, collective consciousness around things like a stable unit of account uh many like myself are members of what i like to call a devalued generation that lived through those horrible cycles of inflation devaluation debt default uh the lost uh, decade of the 1980s etc etc and the, the the horrors that that uh uh, the way that that this decimated uh, mexican enterprise and opportunity and and um and and economic growth and standards of living back in the uh back back in the back in the 80s uh so there, i think there's enough of a consciousness that it's not whether i'm a milton friedman monetarist or a champion of mmt or 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 a, a great uh, connoisseur of monetary policy i just want my vessel to be stable man that's it and that's the house mother seems to be the great champion of the fact that that stability, if inflation is, is, is getting lower, why, why is my supermarket bill is still higher? And though, that's the big question. And that speaks to the fact that there has been a change in paradigm 
in the mentality of the younger generations in Mexico that had become accustomed to the fact that now you, with a stable unit of account, you can do things like run a, a net present value calculation or run into, you know, that you can rely now on calculations of internal rate of return for investment or that you can do all kinds of things that were, were impossible to do or were just hypothetical exercises on an Excel spreadsheet. And I think the same thing can be said about competition. It's not the fact that, uh, remember the debates back in the early 90s about about whether we were all uh, uh, far-right champions of Adam Smith and the, ideolo the ideology of competition and, and, and whatnot. Today, competition is taken for granted. And there's also a change in paradigm and the Thomas Kuhn sense of change in paradigm of a mindset that has become, from the consumer side, accustomed to seeing a lot more availability of goods and services at their disposal and from the producer side at the fact that in order to be able to get ahead you must learn to compete and offer the best price at the best possible uh in the in, in the best possible circumstance and especially for micro enterprises that's when it becomes very relevant to talk about the cost of corruption the cost of insecurity the the um the 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 great damage that the unreliability of institutional uh, of of uh, of sound institutions, um, especially in the protection of, of pri private property rights or in 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 judicial arbitration, in in dispute settlement and whatnot, uh, that that's where the real nitty gritty and the real institutional work has to be done. Uh, you recall that people like Sebastian Edwards and Moises Naim talked a great deal about a second wave of reforms. Those are the little reforms, the bits and pieces reforms that turn out to be instrumental uh, in order to be able to capture those that are working, for instance, in, in, in the informal economy or that human capital that seeks opportunity beyond, uh, beyond borders, especially in, in, in the United States. So I think, I think in, that, uh, in, in that regard, uh, whoever becomes president in, in, in Mexico um, – in, in 2024 and whatever the constitution of the of the uh, uh, of the government, they will have to heed the fact that there is a popular consensus surrounding economic values such as competition, such as price stability, and I would even wager to say even fiscal discipline. There's that memory of the fact that spending much more than what you have eventually leads to a downfall. I would wish, John, I would wish that there was also an acknowledgement of the fact that if you're going to do if you're going to use taxpayer money in order to be able to engage in this or that project, that a cost-benefit analysis is good. There would have been a wonderful opportunity for the new airport for AMLO to say, okay, the part of the windfall of the of the tarifa unica aeroportaria, of the TUA tax that, that, that we pay, part of it is going to go to the benefit of the uh, citizenry of Texcoco because we must all share in all of this. And that sharing economy can be done in a very intelligent fashion without that, that drive to deconstruct all the good that had been done for good or ill. And if there was corruption, well, you know, put those in jail that, that were par participants of the, uh, of the corruption, but don't destroy something that today with nearshoring, with logistics, with, with uh, connectivity would have been so unbelievably valuable to Mexico today. I think that type of approach has to has has to adjust to the fact that that you do have a change in paradigm in the Mexican economic system and begin to address things like corruption, things like security, things like intelligent social policy, um, 
or reliable energy. It's not the sovereignty of Pemex and, and capturing the great uh, glory days of oil as a symbol of national sovereignty. It's cheap energy inputs, man. That's that's the bottom line for business, but also for consumers. How Who can capture that sentiment in order to be able to construct a, a credible political alternative? I think that's one of the key questions, 2024 and onwards. Uh, that, that's a wonderful summary. I mean, I, I, I hope and pray that the next uh, the next leader of Mexico um, not only listens to what you just said, but takes away the best of previous governments. You know, the the energy reforms of Peña Nieto were were quite well designed in terms of weaning Mexico off of a bankrupt system of energy, um, of really opening up alternative, particularly clean energy. But also, one has to learn from what AMLO's done extremely well, which is balanced yep. budgets, which is um, uh, allow a central bank to keep a, a, a healthy level of pay. So to encourage free trade, continue to encourage, encourage free trade. Um, and, but as you say, you know, bring back some discipline to public financing and um, a, a, a strategic mindset to any big infrastructure projects that are publicly funded. Um, better still, you know, work with the private sector to co-invest um, in the many different models that exist in infrastructure that way. Um, you know, I think it's it's hard to say if if politicians uh, learn from the past, but if they do. There's really been some excellent examples as well as some awful examples of decision making over the last mm -hmm. 24 years in Mexico that can be drawn from. And hopefully, uh, you know, the one thing I learned about living in Mexico is uh, every six years, we always become an eternal optimist, at least for a short period of time. <laughs> um, so hopefully that optimism will create some smart decision making going forward. Roberto, it is always a pleasure to chat with you, my friend. We could go on for a long time. Um, you've you've once again enriched me with really a, a an arc of history and and an understanding of where Mex how Mexico's developed over the last thirty years and what it means for the country going forward. And uh, thank you for all you do for Mexico, um, all the great thinking and writing and uh, ideas that you circulate amongst people who who matter and make an influence in Mexico. It's uh, you're, you're a real asset to the country. Thank you, my friend. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, thank you for this conversation. I, I, uh, I think it's very important to keep the conversation going. And as you say, let's try and look at what was done well in the past and what wasn't. Uh, let's let's uh, shy away from the enlightened technocrat, but let's also shy away from the messianic populism. And, and and let's try and mix and mingle without any ideological or political uh, um, prejudices what Mexico needs in order to look forward to, in order to be able to transform that vast potential wealth in, into real wealth. And for that, as we say in Mexico, hablando se entiende la gente. So I, I put great value in these conversations, John. Beautifully said. Thank you, Roberto. Um, we'll see you soon. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for another Horizontes podcast, where we discuss key topics and challenges facing Latin American business leaders, featuring expert guests from a variety of fields and backgrounds. 
Horizontes is brought to you by America's Market Intelligence, the leading Latin American market intelligence consultancy. We gather the research, conduct the analysis, and form the recommendations in the bespoke fashion that companies require to make wise business decisions in Latin American and Caribbean markets. You can find Horizontes on all major podcast directories like Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and more. Or you can visit our website, americasmi.com, and look for Horizontes under the Thought Leadership menu.